0: grateful that you would gather together to worship Jesus. We worship Jesus because he came to do what we couldn't do. We worship Jesus because he came to live a perfect life for us. We we worship Jesus because God's given that life to us to all who trust in him. We worship Jesus because he died for us and he took all of God's wrath and that's good news. That's good news to worship, right? Well, uh, before you turn in your Bibles to Judges 18, we're beginning to wrap up our series in the book of Judges. wanted to see if anyone would like to try to recite last week's New City Catechism. It was question six, how can we glorify God? Does anybody want to do that? Anybody want to recite that? I can't see any, any takers. All right, uh, Mary, I see, is Mary though? pop up Mary. Go ahead and stand up and belt it out. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you, Mary. Wonderful. Well, today we are going to see what the law of God requires. We're going to recite that together. So let's recite together. What does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. What we're going to see, and why we need to remember this, is because that's the standard. That's the standard that the law requires. That is the standard of God's law. The reality is we can't meet that on our own. We need Jesus. And by God's grace, we have Jesus. But this is wonderful for us to remember. We we have a standard that we are held to that we cannot meet. And yet God has sent one who has met that standard for us, by which we then can actually obey his law. And that's good news. So turn your Bibles to Judges 18. Judges 18. We're going to read. This is post Samson, post all of the judges, this is is how the people of Israel are now living for themselves, living in a state of idolatry. Let's read God's holy inspired word for us today. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe from Zora and Neshtio to spell out the land, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me, and I become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and, and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting lacking nothing is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtel, their brothers said to them, what do you report? And they said, arise, let's go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go in, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there's no lack of anything that's in the earth. So six hundred men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshiel, went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim and Judah. And on this account, the place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the land of the country of Laish said to the brothers, do you know that in these houses there is an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you'll do. And they turned aside there, and they came to the house of the young Levite, the home of Micah, and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men, armed with weapons of war. And when these went out into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us to be to us as a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be the priest to a tribe or clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan and they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what's the matter with you? Why do you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. What have I left? Then how do you ask me how, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, don't let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. When Micah saw they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, the people quiet and unsuspecting. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. They had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob, and they had. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan. After the name of Dan, their ancestor who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Let's pray. God, when we read accounts like this, it is sobering. It's sobering to see how easily your people fall into idolatry. It's so sobering to see how easy it is to turn away from you. God, we need you. God, we want you. Lord, we, we look to you. We want to love you. Lord, would you enable us to respond to you, to submit to you, Lord? Lord, Lord as we... Look at your word today. Would you reveal our hearts, not so that we might be condemned, but so that we might confess, repent, so we might change, that we might be set free and not be captive. God, I pray that we would love you and serve you as our true king. God, would you enable me to preach by your Holy Spirit? Would you enable all of us to hear by your Spirit? Lord, we need you. We look to you, Lord, and we come boldly before your throne of grace, asking for you to help us in our time of need in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was young, my parents showed me a movie that they had watched when they were young. It was an old black and white that had been badly colorized. It was a movie called The Wizard of Oz. I mean, anybody here seen The Wizard of Oz? It's a really old movie. It's 1939. So if you're under 40, maybe if you're under 50, you probably haven't seen it. But it's it's and and I I don't know if I encourage you to see it or not actually. It's it's uh, kind of a disturbing movie. A lot of things stood out to me in the movie. I love the, the characters and the, the scenery and, and, and some of the other details. But one of the things that I remember is something that really scared me was these flying monkeys. And, and it has nothing to do, by the way, with the message today. But it just stuck out to me. Of like, I was terrified as a young kid by these weird flying monkeys. But the movie was kind of relatable. It was relatable on many levels because you can relate to all the characters in some way. And the reason why I think people liked it so much is because it spoke to something in us. It spoke to desires that we all have. You know, Dorothy, she had a desire to be at home. She, she was driven by this desire to be at home. Maybe you could put these desires in another category. I doubt the, the writer of the movie intended to be put in the category of idolatry. But really, these, the main characters really all have these idols they serve that drive them the whole time. These idols that drive them. Dorothy, she has an idol of wanting to to feel at home, to be at home, to be someplace like home because there's no place like that. She can only be happy when she's at home. And that drove her. And then you, you see the other characters in the story. Scarecrow thought he could only find happiness and wholeness if he was smarter. You see, the ten man who thought that he could, he could only truly be fulfilled if he could get in touch with his emotion and have a heart, if he could only feel. The lion thought the courage was what he needed to be truly complete. Said another way, really all of these characters had their own idols they lived for. Those idols led them down a path, and at the end, it was completely empty. They got to the end. They were seeking this wizard who would help them get what they wanted, would help them get what they thought would fulfill them and make them feel whole, and they get to the end, and they discover this wizard is nothing. He can't help them at all. So really, I'm reinterpreting the whole movie as a picture of idolatry and the fruitlessness of idolatrous pursuits. Hope I didn't spoil that for you, but it's old enough. That's okay. You know, the, the book of Judges, when we, when we read the book of Judges, sometimes it can be hard to see what, what's really going on. It wasn't written just as a history book. And don't, don't open your Bible up ever thinking, this is just a book of history. This is just a book of accounts of what happened. No, it is historically true, historically accurate in every way. Where it's, it is historical, it's true. But the reality is, is is the author is writing with an intent. Ultimately, the author, the human author, is writing with the intent of communicating something about God and something about us. And ultimately, God is intending for us to get something about ourselves and something about who he is. And I think this passage, it helps us. In in Judges 18, it helps us see some of the motives. What's driving these Danites as they go down the path, as they go into what they think is their ultimate land, to Laish, they go all the way up north, away from, by the way, their inheritance, to land of their own making. And they, they go there and they're driven by some things. And actually... All the different main characters in the story are driven by idols. And I think one of the reasons why the author of the book of Judges gave us this account was was so that we could see some of the motivation that leads us into idolatry. Some of those motives that, that can lead. And we're not very different. You see, humans, we're still motivated in some of the same ways. It doesn't look the same, but we're still motivated by some of the same things. And, and, and I believe what we'll see in this passage is some of the motives or the roots behind idolatry. In the very opening verses, we see that, that the, the people of Dan, they're actually seeking ease. And they're motivated by seeking ease. And this seeking of ease, it actually leads them into idolatry at the end. They're seeking ease. I don't know about you, but in my life, this is a place where I can subtly be tempted to seek ease. And that ease can can lead me away from obedience to God and instead can lead me to idolatry. Thinking that if I just take it easy and if I just pursue the easy route, things will be okay for me. A trouble-free life. They were seeking ease instead of obedience. You see, in the last part of Judges 19, God had, had allocated different portions of the land to all the different tribes of Israel and At the end of Judges 19, he allocated an inheritance to the tribe of Dan. And it was with the cities they were in, Zorah and Eshterol, all the way down to the coastline of what we see as modern-day Israel today. But the problem was there were people there, and they were intimidating. And, And they seemed like they were unbeatable. And so the people of Dan, they recoiled. They didn't fight when they should have fought. They weren't obedient to God because it was hard, and they sought the easy way out. And so as a result, we read in Judges 1, it says that the the Amorites, they pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they didn't allow them to come down to the plain. And it tells about how they persisted in dwelling in all those different areas. But then the results are, you see, God wasn't pleased. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, there were people there. They had challenges. They had things they had to do. They had to actually trust in God and fight. That's what they were called to do. That, that shouldn't have shocked them. That was the call that Joshua gave to the people of Israel as they went into the promised land. He says, trust in the Lord. He will fight your battles for you, so go and fight. But instead, they, they took it easy. They were intimidated. They were fearful. They didn't trust in God. Because this is difficult at times, isn't it? It's difficult to trust in God. It's difficult to fight trusting in his ability to fight. Instead, they gave up. And, it, and it led that, that ease led them to idolatry. And God wasn't pleased with that. Look in Judges 2.20. It says, it says in God's reaction to their disobedience, they're seeking the easy way, seeking to pacify, to assimilate, to accommodate. And, and God says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. They didn't obey him. They didn't trust him. They didn't fight. They didn't do the hard things God was calling them to do. And they didn't drive out the idolatry in the land. And so because of that, it says, in verse 21, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether will it take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And we see at the end, they didn't. They, they took the easy way out. The last chapter, it revealed the, the reason for the decline of the people of Israel. At the beginning, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This chapter just opens up with an abbreviated statement, form of that. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Now, as I mentioned last week, there, a, a monarchy had not been appointed yet. But the king it's referencing is, is there was not, they didn't recognize God as their king so they didn't submit to God, they didn't obey God, they took the, the easy way out looking to be their own God because it's far easier to be your own God than to have God ruling you. So they didn't serve God as their king, they didn't acknowledge him as their, as their true lord, their true master. They didn't look to him as king, they didn't trust him as king, they didn't obey him. They took the easy way out. Dan was really close to the bulk of the Philistines down on, along the coastline. And so they were saying, hey, instead of fighting, instead of taking these 600 men and trying to fight, and by the way, where were they when Samson went into their territory that they were supposed to possess? That was the territory that was allocated to the Danites. They didn't go follow him. They didn't try to fight with him. But now they're saying, okay, we're going to take this, we're going to go scout out the land and find some easy place to live because it's too hard to do what God's calling us to do here you know, don't, aren't we tempted in the same way? Now, we're not called to physically fight, but we, we are called to, to fight to obey God, to, to do what God's calling us to do. And at times it's difficult, but we look for the easy way out. We look to say, hey, how can we, how can we make an easy life for ourselves? Instead of pleasing God because it's difficult, we're going to make an easy life for ourselves, and that leads us away from the Lord. People's inheritance hadn't fallen to them. Well, of course it hadn't fallen to them. They weren't just going to get it. They had to fight for it. And so they send out these spies into the land. They say, go explore. And these five men they send out, they go to the land of Laish. And the land of Laish is way up north. They They had to go from where they are in Israel across Ephraim up all the way, about 29 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was just past Israel's allocated land. It was outside the boundaries of what God gave them. But it was easy. And sometimes for us, we go outside the boundaries of, of what God has allocated for us, what he's given to us, because it's easier, it's simpler, and, and it, might, you know, it might give us prosperity, at least in this life. And they go up there and they find this trusting and unsuspicious people. And you know, three times throughout the account it says they're unsuspecting, or they were trusting, they were not suspicious, they were peaceful people. They kept to themselves, they lived securely, they were peaceably, they were in abundance. And by the end of the chapter, we see that the Danites they went up there and it was easy to conquer, but the easy way out ends in idolatry. And at the end of the chapter, we'll see that it ends even worse than that. But too often we're like the Danites, we run into problems, difficulties, we assume something's wrong. When life gets challenging, God God must have left us. He does he, he doesn't really want us to fight. He doesn't want us to obey, do the hard things he's calling us to do. But we forget that all the apostles went out of their way to let us know that in this world we're going to have troubles. We're going to have suffering. As Jesus himself, in this world you have many troubles, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That's kind of similar to his command to the Israelites. and He says, go into the land. You're going to experience challenges. You're going to experience the enemy, but take heart. I've overcome the enemy. It's the same kind of language that we see. But idolatry, it can, it, can, it can be easy to slip into because sometimes it can feel right. It can feel the easy way. It can feel like it's the right way. Think about a couple living together because, you know, God, God is love and it's easier than the hardship of breaking up. Just using religion to baptize idolatry is easy. You know, sometimes we think, I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to give right now because I'm going to save and accumulate to myself. And that, that seems good because it's easy and God wants me to be happy. Or, you know, an unbeliever being attractive to a believer and saying, it's easy because I get along well with them. So I'm just going to marry them. A believer marrying an unbeliever. And you see that because they think it's going to be easy. Or just not seeking to disciple your children because it's, it's easier to just kind of go along with the flow, just kind of coast. It's easier not to deal with hard things. It's easier not to have conflict with your spouse, conflict with people in the church. It's easier, but it might not please God, but it's easier. And that's going to lead to this worship of ease, this worship of God's of our own making. We don't just see that motivation of ease, we also see this selfish ambition that leads to idolatry. We see selfish ambition leading to idolatry. We don't just see this with the priest, by the way. We see this with the Danites as well. The Danite spies somehow, they, they go out into the land and they recognize the voice of the priest. I'm not sure if they knew him somehow. He was, he was in Judah. They were in, in their area of, that they've been allocated. Or maybe it's just a southern accent that gave him away, but in any case, they recognize him. And they say, what are you doing here? And it's a good question because a Levite would have belonged in a place where he was serving God's ordained priesthood. So they say, what are you doing here? What's your business here? What? And it's insightful because Levi, who was there, would have been outside of God's business. And then he, the way he answered, it's actually revelatory. It reveals that the reason why he's not doing God's business, that why he's not following God's calling, is because he's actually more concerned with his own back pockets. He says, well, here's how Micah treated me, and he hired me. You know, in the previous account, it talks about how Micah ordained him as a priest, and he has this priestly calling, but Micah had no position to ordain him as a priest. But really, what was motivating him, he, he comes out. He says, He's hired me. He wanted somewhere where he could have it easy, where he could, he could make some money. In this desire, his selfish ambition, it's led to idolatry. But the men of, that have, damn, they didn't care that Micah was disobeying God. They didn't care. They just wanted to inquire of God to see if they would succeed. They weren't bothered, like, what are you doing here? What's your business? Oh, oh, you, he hired you. Okay, cool. So, hey, could you ask God to see if we'll succeed? Now, the funny thing is, it doesn't say that Micah actually asked God. He just kind of told them, he's like, tells them what they want to hear. He said, go in peace. The journey in which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Kind of like an ancient times horoscope. He just said something that was generically true to pacify them, to make them feel like they would be successful to send them on their way, to tell them something that they wanted to hear. Maybe he's trying to get on their good side. But they were definitely being motivated by selfish ambition. They wanted to succeed, and they were just using God as a means to get their own success. They weren't seeking God's will. They weren't seeking if this is what God was calling to do. They weren't even worshiping God. They just wanted God to make them successful. How many times are, are we driven by that too? We we use God like a talisman. We want God just to make us successful. Well, these five spies, they come back down to their fellow Danites, they tell them to get ready to go for go to war. Because the land there is really good and it's good for the taking. You tell them about how how abundant the land is, how how it is broad, is spacious. And he says, For God has given it. They, they, they're not wanting to love God and serve God. They're just they're using religion as a mask for their own selfish ambition. This is the place where there's no lack of anything that's on the earth. They're just driven by the desire to get, not by the desire to please God. And then look at verse 14. These five men, they go out to scout the country, of, the country of Laish, and they said to the brothers, do you know that in these houses, and think about why are they telling this? Do you know in these houses there's an ephod, there's household gods, there's a carved image, a metal image, and then the author kind of writes tongue-in-cheek, he says, now therefore consider what you'll do. What are, they, what are they after here? They're after the people's riches. They're after people's idols. They're after what they can get. They're not like, hey, this is a good place to go and worship. They're not like, hey, I hear you've got this really, really dope silver idol here and it's worth a lot of money. And all these other household gods, and they have a priest in Ephi where we can assault God and get what we want. God will kind of baptize our selfish ambitions. And they weren't any better than a band of thieving thugs. They're willing to steal from their own countrymen to get what they thought could benefit them. And, and isn't it true the origins of this kind of illicit worship? They begin in, in seeking to use religion to, to get what we want at the expense of others. They, they mask a selfish ambition with religion. They weren't concerned. It says they asked in verse 15 about the welfare of this young Levite—they—they're—they're they're not concerned about the welfare of this young Levite. They're going there to steal. They're like, "How are you doing?" They're, they don't care what his answer is because they tell him to shut up later on, and they threaten him with six hundred armed men. So you know, Micah—he, I mean, the the Levite of Micah—he goes out to the gate to meet them, and and they're like, "How are you doing?" "You, you well?" Meanwhile, they send these five spies in. They go and steal these idols and this silver image, and they take them out. And the Levite says, he sees them, and he's like, what what are you doing? But he's easily bought, too. They come out to the gate. Look in verse 18. He says, what are you doing? And in verse 19, they say, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be a father to us and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to the tribe and clan in Israel? What are they appealing to? They are appealing to his own selfish ambition here. And it works. Here's the guy who in the last chapter says Micah treated like a son. And he hired him and he treated him like a son. He brought him to his house and he's living with Micah and he's like one of his sons. But that is irrelevant to this self-seeking, selfishly ambitious priest. He's like, I could probably make more money with a whole tribe than I can with Micah. And by the way, I can get more affirmation from a whole tribe than I can from one person. And so he goes. And look at verse 20. It's telling. He's driven by this selfish ambition. It says the priest's heart was glad. He had no trouble betraying the guy who treated him like a son. Because he was driven by selfish ambition and it drove him to idolatry. It was too good to turn down. He had no loyalty except to his own personal advancements. He took the loot. It says. Then, so they they bring it out, and so he takes it. And he goes out in the middle of the people, and he goes with them. He was loyal to his back pocket and his pride, and Danites' greed and their desire for a good, easy life. It it led them to idolatry, and then it leads them. We see in in verse twenty seven really that it leads them to go and massacre a trusting, unsuspecting people, and it says that three times. It's you know. There's oftentimes when God calls people to go and and get rid of people who are idolatrous, and to get, do away with them. But there's no such command from God. They're, they're going outside of God's commands in this case. And these are peaceful, unsuspecting, trusting people who weren't bothering anybody else or keeping themselves. And yet this is selfish ambition that drove the Danites to go and to slaughter them all by the edge of the sword. And we're supposed to see this. This, this is not a good thing. But both they and the priest, they weren't really serving the Lord at all. They reject the one true living God to take these idols to follow after their own gods, their own little man-made godlets. But they weren't just motivated by that. They are also motivated by this kind of religious superstition too, right? Because religious superstition, it leads to idolatry. And you think that we're not superstitious today at all. We're not like that. But do you ever find yourself doing certain things, praying certain ways, Because you think that somehow doing those things or acting in those ways will make God favorable towards you because it'll get you what you want. They want God to be with them, but on their own terms. They don't care about the priest's credentials as long as he's blessed them. They they want God to baptize their plans. They don't want to submit to the plans of God and, and be baptized in devotion to his word. They want to possess religious good luck charms. They like tradition. They like what they know. And those idols, those things that seem like they get what they want, they bring them along because they're superstitious. And they're believing that if they just bring these, these practices along, that somehow God will bless that. But, you know, God has spoken about that in many other places in his word. He says, you know, I, I don't want your empty sacrifices. And First Samuel we see that. He says, I, I don't want your empty sacrifices. He, Obedience is far better than sacrifice. Just empty, meaningless, going through the motions, religiosity. Don't think that coming to church on Sunday mornings and coming on Wednesdays with a small group and just being there, participating, is somehow going to make you blessed by God. No, God's after our hearts. Now, he wants us to do those things, but from the heart. He doesn't want mere formality, mere religion. And don't think that somehow mere religion and all those trappings will somehow get you blessed by God. God's after our hearts. He wants us to obey Him from the heart. These are false gods. The images didn't seem to bother them. Living, they weren't living in the fear of God. They lived as if God didn't care about their idols, and they were comfortable in their idolatry too. David Jackman, I like the way he puts it. He says, they, they felt safe without needing to have any dealings with the transcendent deity. They didn't actually deal with God personally. Says, That's always the attraction of false religions: feeling safe without needing to have any dealings with a transcendent deity. You know what, what practices do you look to to as talismans or to superstitiously to baptize your lifestyle, your choice. You know, think about the the odd thing of how people. I've been invited to do funerals of people who just are unbelievers, but they want somebody who believes in God to do a funeral because they think that somehow that, that they'll be better off and that their loved one who's died will be better off after the fact if a Christian pastor does it. Now, it might, might be waning, that idea, but that was actually the first funeral I ever did. It was the funeral of a gang member. And his brother was like, well, you're, you're a Christian, right? You're a pastor. You believe in God. And we used to believe in God, so could you come in and do this funeral? You know, people want to quote scripture or say that they're blessed as if somehow that really makes them blessed by God. You know, people sometimes will pray when they're in difficulty superstitiously, but there's no heart, not a real pursuit of God. My wife and I were watching a politician speak this past week and they claimed the Lord's name to get ahead politically. Politically. And they pretended to ask God to, to bless our land. But there, there was no heart for God and their actions speak otherwise. There's no desire to follow after God. And I don't know people's hearts, but but you need to be careful because we can let this these superstitious things and we can hang on to those words. Wow, that politician, that person says that they're asking God to bless our country or, or they're saying God's name, so somehow then they must be blessed. But outward conformity to the rituals or... I was watching a television show and and, and the people involved were just in television show were just, just completely immoral. But one of their relatives died and so they began singing Amazing Grace and as if somehow singing about God's grace is going to somehow make God pleased with them when they have no heart for him and aren't living for him. It's just empty religion. Mere superstition, seeking all the benefits without the cost and sacrifice and submission. And it leads to idolatry. But not only that, we see the last thing we see is that personal power, seeking personal power leads to idolatry. The people of Dan, they aren't noble. They're using their power for gain. They want to be in control. They want to be in charge. They want to be in a land where they dominate, where they're in charge. And we see them using their their personal power, seeking their personal power in in negative ways. And they, They tell Micah, quiet down. And the threat is there or you lose your life. And your whole household will too. When Micah comes out to him and he says, well, you know, What are you guys doing? And they're like, What do you, what do you mean? What, do you, what, are you, what are you following us for? Like they were unaware that they'd just stolen from him. But they weren't because it says that they actually sent their kids ahead and the army was at the back because they knew they're going to be pursued. And so they turn around and they tell Micah, Hey, be careful if, you, if you're angry with us because, like, I don't know, angry guys might come out and kill you and your whole household. You know everybody in this story is a thief and a scoundrel. <laughs> you know, ironically, Micah, the story began of Micah in chapter 17 of judges. He was a thief stealing from his mother, and now here's his own countrymen stealing from him. And the people of Israel, they, they become a people of dishonor, looking for something that would give them power, something that would give them ability, and yet in the end, it actually makes them completely powerless. So they go up there to Laish with all of Micah's idols and the priests, and they go out and they cut down these peaceful, trusting people. They burn their city. They they seek personal power. It leads to idolatrous practice. And instead of you know pursuing God at that point and saying, well, we have a land now. Why don't we, why don't we pursue God? No, they just they set up the carved image for themselves and Micah's carved image. They set up their own idols. This is where they're. Self seeking leads, it leads to idolatry. It says the whole time the house of God was at Shiloh, they served their own gods. And really, the fundamental question you have as you're reading this is who is in charge of our lives? Who will be in charge of our lives? They were living as if God was not their king, as if God was not in charge of their lives, and they were living for themselves, living for their own idols. They were seeking to be in power and control of themselves. You ever, by the way, you ever driven by that kind of idol? Idol of control? Wanting to be in charge? Wanting to make, make sure that, that your outcome, your desired outcome is secure? Either, either we're going to seek to be in power and charge of our own lives, or we're going to submit to God and let him be in charge. There's, there's no other option. You know, the serpent, when he went to the Garden of Eden, he questioned Eve. And he says, has God really said? What he's saying is, is, is God really in charge? Does he really have authority over you? And he says, because you know what? God, you're not, God said you're going to die, but you're not really going to die. And, and, and here's the thing. I, I, don't you want to be like God? He just wants to keep good things from you. Don't you want to be like him? Don't you want to be God? You know, Micah, he, he wanted... He wanted to be in control. He wanted his own power. The Danites wanted to wield their own power to manipulate and steal. They wanted to be in charge of their own land, their own place. And the question for us is who's going to be in charge of our lives and our worship, God or ourselves? Uh, Augustine once said that Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Do you value him above all? Hudson Taylor put it a different way when he says Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Who's Lord over your life? Micah, the Danites, they acted the way they wanted because they wanted their own way. They weren't seeking to worship the one true God. They wanted to use religion to get their own way. Maybe you think, I don't don't have that issue. You You ever get angry at God when you don't get what you think you deserve? If it's health or a job or money or power or position or the kids to turn out the way you want them to or a spouse to be the person you want them to or the kind of neighbors you think you deserve and you get angry because you think all these things, I need all these things to make me happy and I'm not getting what I think I deserve, you might be struggling with idolatry. When we follow Jesus, we, we say, not my will, but yours be done. It's a daily taking up our cross and, and following him because it, it requires dying to ourselves. You know, John the Baptist was the one that, who Jesus said of him that, that no one who is born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a statement, right? And what does John the Baptist say? He says, he must increase and I must decrease that be our mindset as we flee false religions, false gods of our own making. Yeah, it's one of their own way. They got it. And God left them to their own devices. And what we see in the end is that idolatry leads to captivity. That's, that's the big idea of this whole passage. The main idea is idolatry. It leads to captivity. Look down your Bibles. Verse 30. The end of verse 30. It says, they set up for themselves images. And it says, Until the day of the captivity of the land, this idolatry persisted, God left them in their idolatry until they were taken away captive, and we know they were taken away captive by the Assyrians. And they stayed that way, they set up Micah's carved image he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. They didn't worship God where the ark was, they worshipped their own gods of their own making, and they were led into captivity as a result, and that's what the author wants us to see. You hear something else shocking. I don't know if you caught it when we read it. Did you catch it? Look down at verse 30. What's, what's shocking about that verse? The author writes, the young Levite, he explains who the young Levite is now. He kind of, he pulls open the curtain and he shows you who this Levite is and he says, it was none other than Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. And you're meant to say, What? Are you kidding me? This is Moses' his grandson, is this corrupt Levite? The grandson of the one who saw God, who, who came down from Mount Zion with his face shining because he had encountered the presence of God, and this is his grandson now who's leading in idolatrous worship. And you're meant to be shocked and sickened. Shocked that the grandson of Moses one of the greatest men who's ever walked the earth. Moses, this is his grandson now. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses. This is his grandson. And all his, for years, his sons were priests of this false worship. You to see how easy idolatry creeps into any family. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It's easy for idolatry to creep in. And we're meant to be shocked by it. And it leads to captivity. Moses' grandson is leading in this idolatrous worship and then they stay that way until they're taken away captive. That's the legacy of idolatry. Using religion as a means for personal gain. Using religion as a means to serve their own ends. Moses, who served the one true God, his grandson, now is just using religion as a means to serve his own ends and What they really need, what you're meant to see is they need a king. They need a king. We need a king. To to rebuild a true place of worship, to lead us into true worship so that we won't be led away into captivity. A, A king that we won't fall prey to idolatry. A king who we can trust. A king we can follow. A king who will lead us to worship God. A king who will enable us to worship God. A king who will lead us into freedom instead of captivity. And That's the kind of king they need. David, he'd reunite them with the other parts of the kingdom, Solomon rebuilt the temple, but even Solomon, the wisest man who lived on earth, in the end did what was right in his own eyes. He wasn't the true king. We, we need a king that's going to deliver us, a king that's going to enable us to, to come into God's throne room, to come into worship God freely. And Jesus is that king. He is the one true image of God, Hebrews tells us, the exact representation of God. He's not an idol. He is God himself. Come to meet us. Come to be with us so that we might know him and have a relationship with him and that as we follow God, not any other idol, as we follow him and serve him and love him and live for him and even lay down our lives for him, sacrificing for him, there are great rewards because he leads us to true freedom. Out of captivity into freedom. He delivers us. He is the one who frees us from our sins. He is the one who gives us an inheritance. He is the one who brings us into his inheritance, not our own inheritance of our own seeking. He himself is the temple where God and man meet. The true and lasting temple that will never be corrupted. In Jesus, he brings us into union with God so our whole lives can be lived as worship to him. And And then he makes us his temples that we are filled with his spirit, honoring him and worshiping wherever we go. Church, may we turn from our idols and turn to him because he gives true freedom. He gives significance. He gives meaning. He gives worth. He gives value. He brings us truly home. And he's the only way we're going to ever feel at home in his presence, worshiping him. Let's pray. Father.